said and she said you need to pay attention If they make the comment then it's worth the mention Jamil and Shatora you know they got the scoop At work talking about what black people do If you ain't real then you probably won't feel this It's all facts you know they coming with the realness Or pettiness either way you are getting it Uncut, unfiltered, and unedited Lifting up the culture, you know how it's gotta be Making words work, give it to you tongue in cheek Forget that water cooler, we like tea sweet This is boss talk reserved for the B-sweet B-sweet, B-sweet Boss talk is reserved for the B-sweet B-sweet, B-sweet Cool it out or you'll end up on that B-sweet we're back, y'all. It is the B Sweet Podcast. We are back. We need that. We need. That. We keep saying we're gonna get that horn, but we got. We're gonna get it at some point. Man. Wait, should I do it? Go ahead, do it. Oh, I haven't heard that in a minute. <laughs> What's going on, y'all? Uh, this is Jamil. I'm Shitora, and we are back for another long-awaited episode of the B Sweet Podcast. It's we left y'all hanging. You know, we have reason though, Shatora. Well, social distancing. Yes. <laughs> we we try to we're trying to be safe. We're trying to be, you know, yeah. keep ourselves healthy stay out home here. To stay safe. Right, right. So we're just uh we're really excited to be back with another uh podcast. And this one's gonna be special today. This is gonna be really special, but yeah. um we're gonna get into that in just a second. But <laughs> how have you been, Shatora? What's Ooh. been going on with you? Oh, I've been really good. Um, I mean, you know, how has anyone been? just trying to navigate a new normal. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the beautiful things that happened uh, during this time is navigating that new normal takes you out of your comfort zone mm -hmm. and just like really relying on my relationship with God and staying grounded in my principles um, and reaffirming what those are for mm -hmm. myself. Uh, that's That's been a really special, special time for me, special place. So. Yeah. So that's that's super dope. And, and I love anytime we get the opportunity to speak and, and I just hear uh, about that spiritual growth um, that you that you are experiencing. Like that's that's just an amazing thing. I mean, it it keeps me grinning from ear to ear just to <laughs> just to see your growth. You know, yeah. so I'm, I'm super happy for you. You don't go through it. You grow. Through it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I always tell people, too, there's always a breakdown before a breakthrough. So oh, okay. I see major breakthrough happening for a lot of us. You know, um, me, I, you know, things are just going extremely well for me business-wise and things like that. Family's good. You know, I'm healthy. Got my COVID test. Came back clean, baby. You know, <laughs> Did so you get tested? I got tested. I definitely got tested. Welcome got my COVID. to New York State where tests are abundant. Yes, yes. So, you know, so I, we're, we're, we're all good in, yeah. in the cruise household, you know, so, but again, I'm just, I'm just, uh, it's been a heavy last few months just with everything that's been going on um, just across the country with the social unrest and then obviously still dealing with COVID and um, going through, you know, just economic another cycle issue. of it, yeah, economic, yeah, the everything. Crisis inside of the crisis. Right, the crisis. right. So that's why it's important to stay grounded, um, love yourself first and, and give love because that's, you know, I talk about love on this show all the time. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's just healthy. It's mm -hmm. healthy. Right. Um, so we, um, I know we have a lot of, especially with this with this uh, new episode, um, we haven't been around in a while. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of new listeners. Oh, you read well. my mind. We had a lot of new listeners. Oh you know, that's what we do. We read each other's mind. You know what I'm saying? But um, so I, I just want you just to kind of just explain a little bit about uh, what the B Suite is. Like, how how did we even even come about? You know, uh, um, bringing this thing together. 
Um, well, the, the B-suite kind of happened in my mind one day when I was at work and I was like, man, this is happening to me. I don't have nobody to talk to. <laughs> and then we were talking one day and I was just like, yeah, so you want to start a podcast? <laughs> and when I told you what the concept was, which is the B-suite, what black people talk about at work, mm -hmm. you were like, bet, let's do it. Yeah. So, you know, what does that mean practically? Well, basically we facilitate intelligent conversations about issues that the black community faces. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily work issues, but it's issues that you would kind of talk about around the water, mm -hmm. right? Um, so so today um, we're, we're talking about not an issue, but a man who brings light to various issues within our, you know, within society. Yeah. And so uh, we have the distinct honor and privilege of having Sean King yes. on the show. Graciously agreed to be on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And really the, the whole point of Sean being on here is because we want to know more about him. Right. We want to know more about what motivates him to do his work and how his work affects him and his family. I think uh, when anyone does something that puts them out in the limelight, it takes a lot of courage mm -hmm. uh, and tenacity to be able to to do that and, and maintain it. So, you know, I think it's really important just to know what keeps someone going. And we're interested to find out what he has Yeah, to so we're really interested to have this conversation with Sean King. We're about to do that in just a second. But before we do, obviously, this is our first time doing a video podcast as well. You know, so. I don't have any makeup. Yeah, yeah. No, so, and I don't have a haircut. That's why I have a hat on right now, y'all. So. you just um, giving it to you. Yeah. Giving so, it to straight. Right. And this is like you know, what we would have done, like when we do our live um, in-person podcast, but you know, this is, everything is in this virtual space now, but um, because of that, we have some very cool technology that we're using. And um, I gotta give a big shout out real quick to to my sis, Andrea, um, down in uh, Long Island. You know what I'm saying? She's checking in right now. So oh, big, hey, yeah, just hey, big girl. shout out to hey, you. So, hey, strong Island. so yeah, so make sure that y'all leave comments, you know, um, we will make sure that we uh, we shout you guys out. Um, throughout the podcast. But without further ado, I want to introduce um, Sean King. Um, so I just want to read a little bit about Sean King. So as a leader of the Black Lives Matter movement, Sean King has become one of the most recognizable and powerful voices on the front lines of civil rights and our time. His commitment to reforming the justice system and making America a more equitable place has brought challenges and triumphs, um, soaring victories and crushing defeats. Um, throughout uh, his wide-ranging activism, Sean's commentary remains rooted in both exhaustive research and abundant passion. Um, King helps us see our present place in a larger current of American history. He's adopted social media to rally uh, and unite people of disparate backgrounds um, and has become one of the most followed activists in the world. Um, he uses his platform as a journalist and in 2019, uh, King launched a new website using the name The North Star, proclaiming it to be an online revival um, of the original newspaper uh, and and that he had the support of his relatives, of Frederick Douglass, um, um, the original paper's, uh, original paper's editor. Um, he's involved in several initiatives, um, including grassroots law, the Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission. And he has a new book that's coming out as in his upcoming book, Make Change. King offers um, a he offers an inspiring look at the moments 
that have shaped his life and considers the way social movements can grow and evolve in a hyper connected era. So that's without a, that's a lot. Without further ado, <laughs> we have my brother from another mother, Mr. Sean King. Y'all give it up for Mr. Sean King. What's up, Sean? Hey, I'm good to see you all. Good to see you both. And and uh man, you had to read all of that, man. You you could you could have said a third of that, but I appreciate you. <laughs> Hey, I can see you all. Can you see me? Hold on one second. I think we have some. Have some. Hold on one second. I think yeah, we, yeah, you know, no problem. This yeah, is this yeah. is a, you can tell this is a live situation right now. Well, <laughs> this is definitely is, a live situation. See, uh, I can see both. I can see and hear both you of them. Okay, so yeah, we uh, you know having a little little tech issues, but it's all good. So um, so yeah, we have Mr. Sean King on the show. Um, I had the privilege of actually uh, meeting Sean King. Uh, last summer, we had the uh, distinct pleasure of sitting on a panel together at the National Urban League Conference, and and from that from that moment, you know, uh, just having a conversation with him and just being um, just so um, thankful for the work that he does on behalf of our people. I um, mean, really bringing um, and and really speaking um, truth to power um, here and um, around a lot of issues. So, so Sean, thank you so much for joining us, man. How are you, bro? Oh, no, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. You all can hear me okay? Yes, sir. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I'm doing well. No, man, I'm, I'm glad to see both of you and, and glad to spend some time speaking to you. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to be connected during the pandemic. And um, it's uh, I, I, I believe that 2020 is going to be seen as one of the most difficult years in the, not just American history, but like in the modern history of the world yeah. for a very long time, people are going to look at this year and, and it's only July. <laughs> and so uh, we need some good news, but um, you know, our, our country is going through a hard time and the whole world is going through a hard time. But you know, anytime we have a chance to, to make a human connection like this, I'm glad to do it. Yeah. So we know we, we certainly appreciate that. And um, just appreciate you for, you know, like I said, this the work that you're doing, man. So uh, one, one thing I want to ask, though, Sean, uh, because one of the things one of our goals with this particular um, podcast is to really, you know, um, let people know who Sean King is. Right. So um, just tell us, like, I mean, because you you have to you deal with a lot, brother. You deal with a whole lot. So how do you like how, how are you like how is your mental health and how do you, you know, just kind of cope? just through all of the things that we're going through. Um, just kind of talk to us about how Sean King is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good question. You know, social media is just a part of who any of us are. Like all of us are more than a good tweet or a bad tweet or a good Instagram post or a bad Instagram post. Social media is not even really an accurate reflection of our daily lives it's it's sometimes it's just the highlights sometimes it may just be the difficult moments and and for me that's i think compounded because most of my day is spent being a father i have five kids from elementary school middle school high school and college four girls and and one son and my wife and i don't post our kids a lot but they are like a huge part of our daily lives from the time we wake up until we go to bed and so if all you know about me, you got from social media or if you got from a trending topic or a hashtag or something like it doesn't show my life as a father. It hardly shows my life as a husband. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm, I'm, I turned 40 this year. I've been with my wife for almost 25 years. Wow. Wow. That's all about relationship going. I mean, we've been together. I've been with my wife since we were teenagers in high school. And, and like, that's a huge, huge part of who I am. And social media has a way of kind of reducing people to their worst moments or sometimes even kind of just, you know, stereotyping them as just their best moments. If, if you're somebody who's just posting all your highlights, uh, as far as my mental health goes, like the work I do is hard. And, um, I try to tell people like it, it affects me, the work I do trying to help families who've been impacted by police brutality and racial injustice. Like we're actually working directly with these families, be it the family of Ahmaud Aubrey or, or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd and, and bearing the burden of what's happened to them. And that work, you know, I've been doing this work now full time for almost seven years of working directly with families who've experienced this type of injustice. I mean, it, it takes its toll on me. Um, it, you know, there are times where I have to have, I have to take a break. I have to step away. You know, there are times where it affects my mood and my, you know, my capacity to be effective at, at managing people day to day. And so any of us who are doing this type of frontline work, helping people through just horrible acts of violence, it takes its toll on you. And, and that's true of so many people that I know who also do this work. Um, you know, we have boundaries and I, I've I've learned a rhythm over the past few years that I didn't have the first few years that I did this work. But it's taken me it's taken me hitting a wall. It's taken me struggling through life, struggling in my relationships, even in my marriage, struggling as a dad and trying to balance all of these responsibilities. It's taken me several years to kind of finally find a rhythm uh, to do it kind of well mm-hmm. but uh i'm I, I st- so i still struggle you know and and i just want to like be transparent with that it's hard and um it's hard to balance this work and try to be a good father and try to be a good husband and and um and i manage i have several staffs where i'm one of the primary managers of those teams and to still be an effective manager of those teams and so um i have good days and bad days mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's so real. Like we all have good days and bad days, and um, when you're when you're really uh, in a leadership position, you're kind of always uncomfortable, <laughs> and yeah. and it not kind of you're uncomfortable <laughs> a lot, right? And because that's just that's the job of a leader, and I think a real leader also is able to acknowledge that 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 you know every day is a school day and you're oh, sure. always learning yeah so, yeah absolutely you know, what do you think is is one of one of the biggest lessons you've learned and and maybe i'll say this can be uh an answer tailored to to folks in in their early 20s right like what is a lesson that you've learned over the past seven years as you've grown through uh, your position um, and the challenges that you face, how it's um, uh, helped you develop as a leader. Well, it's all it's all relevant, and, and I think I'll probably even go back. You know, um, 
I, I started at Morehouse in 1997. And when I got there, I talk about, I tell some of this story in my book. When I got to Morehouse, I was like super broken. I, I had dealt with, you know, some seriously traumatic moments and experiences. And when I got to Morehouse, like I needed, I like, I needed to put a lot of the pieces of my life back together again. And when I first got out of college, I was a high school history and civics teacher. Uh, that's when I was in, that's when I was in my early twenties. I didn't, I didn't know that I would be doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> I, I, I taught for years in Atlanta's jails and, and prisons and youth detention centers. I traveled to 12 different jails and prisons all over Georgia as a full-time traveling teacher. Um, and that was before we, that was before we weren't even using the words mass incarceration back then. Like, mm -hmm. uh, that's 2005, 2006. We didn't have the book, The New Jim Crow. We didn't even fully understand the magnitude of the problem like we do now. And all of those things that when I was in my 20s having these experiences, I, I, was, a, a, I was a staff pastor at a church and I didn't know what all of those experiences would mean. And I had other jobs too. And it's like, for anybody who might be listening, I. I did security at Atlanta's airport. <laughs> uh, I worked at the container store uh, doing overnight shifts, unpacking trucks and packing the shelves with storage at doing retail. Um, like, I mean, I did everything I could. I, my wife and I started our family when we were just in college mm -hmm. and we were 19 and 20 when we had our first baby. And we were basically babies ourselves trying to find our way through that. But the big lesson that I think I've learned over those years in my 20s is that I, I didn't know it then. And and when you're in your 20s, it's impossible to know. But all of those positions were relevant. All of those jobs meant something. And here I am now, 40, having had just a wide variety of experiences. Many of those jobs, when I had them, I didn't appreciate them. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know what they would mean 20 years later, 10 years later. And so some of that is particularly if you are in your 20s in this pandemic where jobs are hard to come by, where where you, you almost just kind of if you have a job, you have to think of yourself as as blessed and lucky. Try to absorb and learn lessons from wherever you are, whatever stage of life you're in. Now that I can look back with hindsight every one of those jobs some of them that some of them i loved some of them i hated uh some of those jobs i, I was a counselor at a children's hospital and a, a full-time counselor and this was a, a residential children's hospital and it was enormously difficult it was one of the hardest jobs i ever had mm -hmm. these children were suffering through catastrophic trauma that they had experienced and trying to counsel these kids through the trauma they had, the trauma and pain. I remember then thinking like, I don't think I could ever have a job harder than this. <laughs> you know, like, but now here I am now, you know, that was probably 10 or 12 years ago. All of that stuff now prepared me for who I am today. And, and so it makes, it makes the work I do now not nearly as hard as it might be for somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Um, and, and so just to, just to absorb the lessons from wherever you are, and you know, um, 
that that's something even that lesson took me a long time to 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 accept yeah yeah that's that's really good too and i think that's often the story of a lot of people of color you know um, i know for myself coming up you know when when you don't have necessarily the um, the right guidance sometimes and the people that's kind of steering you in, in in the right direction you know oftentimes you just find yourself just kind of just throwing stuff on the wall to yeah. kind of what's going to stick you know yeah. and you know oftentimes people look at it as they look at it as just like oh you're just kind of all over the place and things like that but no i mean like you said i think it's these are true character builders these are things that be, you know i mean i can i can uh, reflect back to when i was like just getting out of college and uh i had a job at kmart you know because i, you I know, worked at kmart before man yeah i worked at kmart i worked i worked in the jewelry i worked in the jewelry department at kmart changing the batteries in people's watches <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a cashier and I was I was probably the most hated cashier because like just my <laughs> I don't know. It's just my energy just wasn't it, it just yeah. wasn't because I, knew I wasn't supposed to be there. But I just remember some of the lessons yeah. that I learned while I was there and I apply a lot of those things to to the person that I am today. You know, so so I, I want people listening to this, like especially the younger people, like really take note. You know, if if you don't have it figured all out just yet, you oh, know, yeah. Okay. Oh well, it's okay. I, I just want to say this: stop yeah. trying to figure it out. Right, <laughs> right. If you right. Don't figure it out, then what you're doing is you're stopping yourself from living right now mm -hmm. and getting the benefits of why you're where you're supposed to be. One thing that age has taught me was every time I go through something now, I'm like, okay, what is God trying to teach me? Mm -hmm. What lesson is in this? And it's always for better. It's yeah. not for better or for worse. It's always for better if you're willing to appreciate that there's a lesson in it. You know, I, I hear that because when I was uh, when I was a student and when I was a college student, I think the expectation was I was student government president at Morehouse and I was very much an activist and an organizer as a college student. And everybody always said that I was going to be some type of organizer or activist but then my wife and i got married we had a baby and then it was just about like providing for my family and i think for most of my 20s i didn't think i would i didn't think i was ever going to get back to being an organizer and an activist like that's what i that's what people expected of me when i was 18 and 19 and 20 and my life took twists and turns i think one of the lessons is that you know like your dreams can come full circle. Your your purpose, like there's sometimes we try to like overlay a, a, a timeline on when certain things are going to happen. And uh, when it was literally just about six years ago, almost to the day when Eric Garner was killed. And when Eric Garner was killed, I was working at an environmental charity. I, my family and I had moved to California and I was not a full-time organizer. I was not a full-time journalist. I had written, I'd written guest pieces for pl for places before. I'd, I'd always been a writer, but I was doing full-time. I was the communications director for a charity called Global Green in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And a buddy of mine that I went to college with sent me this video of Eric Garner being killed. It had not gone viral, and it was something he literally just kind of happened upon on YouTube. And it was the first time in my life that I had ever seen. Now, before then, I had helped organize for Trayvon Martin's family. 
I had helped organize for a young man named Sean Bell. When I was in college, we organized for Amadou Diallo, who was shot and killed in New York. Mm -hmm. But I had never actually seen somebody be killed. And now we horribly, everybody who's watching this has probably seen 50 people be killed. But at that point, when I watched, I clicked on this video that my friend sent me, I had never seen anything like that. And it has such a profound impact on me that it ended up that day ended up being like one of those pivotal days in my life where here I am doing work that was completely different. And I just said, like, I got to do something about this. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to talk to. Uh, but I had just made like a basic decision of I can't watch this and do nothing. And I mean, at that point, I was 34 years old. Um, I had experience. I had had some success professionally, but I was at a job that I was just okay with. And, and yet it was in that moment that kind of my whole life changed. And it could be that way for anybody who's watching, you know, just you can't predict when something like that might happen. Right. 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 So kind of just talk about that for a second, Sean, because, you know, we're, we're in a time now, we're in a space now where, you know, we, we get to experience uh, a lot of these traumatic um, situations. Like, you know, so when you first started to, you know, uh, really start to document those things, like how did it like really change the way you go about, you know, um, your activism um, and things that oh, you, know, yeah. you want to dedicate your life to? Yeah, well, I think I had kind of a real time education with a lot of people in the country. Like I had I had organized, I had protested, I had demonstrated, like I had used social media to rally people for other causes before. But when I saw that video of Eric Garner being killed, I thought I knew what to do to bring that family some type of justice. Uh, it was just maybe about three months later that I first met his daughter, Erica, who has since passed away. And uh, it was almost three weeks after Eric Garner was killed that young brother in Ohio named John Crawford was killed. Uh, that same weekend, Mike Brown was killed. Uh, just a few months later, Tamir Rice was killed. And in that moment, I was completely convinced that me and other people who basically dropped everything, we I quit my job as many other people did. Like I was convinced that we were going to be able to get justice for these families, for Eric Garner's family, for Mike Brown's family, for John Crawford, for Tamir Rice. There was a young brother in Los Angeles named Ezel Ford who was killed. And based on like our energy, you know, the phrase Black Lives Matter took over the whole world. And it was literally those names and those stories were on, on the front pages of papers in almost 150 countries. And I was convinced that we were going to get justice for those families and not a single one of those families got justice. In fact, in 2014, not a single family who was killed by police got any semblance of justice. And in 2015, we started fighting for for Freddie Gray, for Sandra Bland. In 2016, we were fighting for Alton Sterling and a, and a brother named Terrence Crutcher, and Philando Castile. And over those three years, in 2014, 2015, 2016, I, I worked directly with nearly 100 different families from all over the country. And not a single one of those families got justice. None of them. Not, not two, zero. None of them. 
And I talk about this in my book because many activists and organizers hit the same wall that I hit, where we had just given basically three years of our lives fighting for justice for families. Now, we had other little victories along the way. Mm -hmm. We weren't fighting for little victories like we were fighting for police to be held accountable for killing black men, women and children. And these families that we were fighting with, none of them got justice. And it caused me to reevaluate in some ways my whole life of trying to figure out, am I doing something wrong? Are we doing something wrong? Is there another approach that we need to take? And basically, I worked backwards from that answer. Like, I worked backwards from what would it take to actually get these families justice? And out of that, we started an organization called Real Justice that would help elect new district attorneys all over the country. And we decided to take that route because what we learned fighting for all those families that I just named is that there was one person in each of those cities in in New York, in Cleveland, where Tamir was killed, in Los Angeles, where Ezel Ford was killed, in, in Baltimore, in Baton Rouge, where Alton Sterling was killed. There was one person who had the power to really decide whether or not you got justice. And it was the local district attorney. Right. And I didn't understand that so well in 2014, even in 2015, after fighting a hundred battles and losing, literally losing a hundred times, it caused us to say, you know what? We are trying to talk to people who don't even respect us. These district attorneys, they don't owe us anything. They don't even know us. M many times they wouldn't even meet with the families. Not, not only would they not meet with me, they wouldn't even meet with the families of people who have been killed. And it caused us to say, we have to figure out how to replace the decision makers. Mm -hmm. And we, we ran two campaigns in 2016, one for the district attorney of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, and uh, another one in Virginia for a woman named Stephanie Morales. And, and we won both of those campaigns. And it caused us to say, we can change the primary person running this system. And over the past four years, we've won nearly 20 different races all over the country. In just a few minutes, as soon as I hang up from this call, I'm doing an event with Kim Gardner, who is basically the district attorney, if you will, for St. Louis County. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've we've won elections now in San Francisco, Boston, San Antonio, deep in Mississippi and Jackson, Mississippi. And and now that we have those people in those positions now, when we go and say we're trying to get justice for this family, we now have a friend in that position. And that's been some of the most important work of my life. But it took me basically failing for, for three straight years to figure out that this, we were working against a system that was not designed to give us justice. Mm -hmm. And the only mechanism we had to get justice for those families was to change who was, who was at the top. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took a lot of failure and the failure was well-intentioned. Like we, we were right to march. We were right to demonstrate. We were right to create hashtags and trending topics. What we didn't know is that we had basically been put in an impossible situation where the laws and the people administering those laws had no intention on ever giving us justice. And 
And so I think 2020 is a is a real evolution of of what you saw start in 2013 and 2014. I think all of us have gotten smarter. We all understand the systems and the problems and the structures better. And uh, and that's the natural progression. Um, the civil rights movement in 1954 was very different than the civil rights movement six years later in 1960. And I think that's kind of where we are now, six or seven years into organizing, uh, you learn a lot of lessons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. constantly yeah. learning lessons. And, you know, I I, um, I do a lot of reading about, about leadership, but also just about what it takes to like grow and, and get to the next level. And I wonder if, you know, in the framework of failing, right? You talked a lot about failing, which is a key component of success. Um, if you could just react to the word vulnerability. If I could, re if I could react to it now? Yeah, just, just what does vulnerability, what role does vulnerability play in your, um, in your progression? In, in as you continue to, to learn and grow yeah. and re, uh, refocus, but refocus isn't the right word, but um, reverse engineer maybe yeah. uh, your, your, um, your methods. Well, I mean, um, you have to be, you have to make yourself vulnerable in a sense to, and you have to, you, you have to be willing to let go of some of the methods that maybe you you know well if they're not working you have to be uh you have to be vulnerable you have to be humble enough you have to be pliable enough to say everything i've done for the past three years i did with my whole heart but it didn't work and it didn't i even saw many of us myself included kind of tying ourselves in knots to convince ourselves that what we did did work. And I talk about this in the book, like what we did in 2014, 2015 and 2016, it did have an impact. Like we wouldn't be where we are today in 2020 had so many people not fought so hard for justice in those in those first three years. But we also many of us got to the point and, and many of the activists and organizers that I started working with six and seven years ago, we've all gotten to the point where we've learned that we have to pivot our strategies, pivot our approaches, and either either you just keep failing over and over again, which is which is an option. I mean, we did that for several years before we finally said we have to pivot our approach toward policy, toward personnel. It doesn't mean that we stop protesting, but we have to actually find a way to change policy and change the people administering those policies. Um, you you also have to surround yourself with people who would tell you the truth about yourself, about your work, and and thankfully, you know, starting with my with my wife and my closest friends, I have people around me who tell me the good, bad, and ugly about who I am the decisions I've made, mistakes I've made, and people who are willing to kind of walk with me through those things. And, you know, for me, um, I think I'm I'm generally like a, an emotionally present person. 
But the part of how I can fail and get back up again and fail and get back up again, trend on Twitter and get back up again, deal with death threats and keep on moving. It's like I have I have goals that I'm pursuing and I see a lot of the setbacks that I've experienced as just um, almost like road bumps in the process. It's not that I don't learn lessons from them, but there those 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 setbacks are not so big that it's going to stop me from doing the work that I do. And um, in some ways, you know, I have. I, you know, I've learned not to allow my my worst days and my worst moments to cause me from checking out of the work altogether. And some of that is like I may have a bad day. Today's actually a good day for me. But say I had a horrible day. And I mean, say the, the worst day that I could possibly have. Well, tomorrow there's going to be a family who experienced police violence who comes to me and asks me for help. And that's not, that's not, you know, hyperbole or that that's going to happen tomorrow. I'll probably get 10 to 20 families who've experienced some type of injustice who ask, can you please help me? And a lot of ways, those families keep me pushing forward through the drama, through, through what, like I try to make those families my primary focus and, if, if if I have a horrible day or a bad week or whatever, the the work has to continue. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to ask one other question that yeah. kind of builds on what you just said. Um, when you talked about like what happened in 2015 uh, and how it you maybe at the time you thought it was a failure, but looking back, you realize that the work builds upon itself. Yeah. And I, and it makes me think of what you started off talking about was 2020. We're gonna. It's it's um it's a it's a monumental year in in human history. Yeah. And so what we're looking at in 2020 is what what I call an elevation of human consciousness. And so how do we not view 2020 as a failure? And this next part might kind of give it away, but as a stepping stone. Yeah, like, well, yeah. I mean, 2020, there, there is a lot of failure in 2020. Like, our nation has failed us in the worst possible ways when it comes to the coronavirus and the pandemic. Almost every single nation in the world has completely flattened the curve. And most nations have even gotten almost completely over it. There are some nations that haven't even had a single case of the coronavirus in weeks. And we just crossed 4 million cases in our country. And just two weeks ago, we were at 3 million. So in two weeks, we had over a million people diagnosed with with the coronavirus. And it's costing lives, particularly in our communities, over 140,000 people have died. There's a lot of failure there. It's a leadership failure. It's a it's a systems failure from our our healthcare system is failing us. Our political systems are failing us. Um, when we still experience horrible cases of police violence, like what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis, or what happened to Breonna Taylor in Louisville, 
Those are also systems failures. Those police departments failed those two families and failed those cities. What we have to ask ourselves is, can we now do deep systemic work where we fix the systems that actually have caused so much failure? And part of what discourages me, and I, I'm a super optimistic person, is the United States is not great at improving its systems. Yeah. Um, our systems, from our healthcare systems, to our immigration systems, to our policing and incarceration systems, uh, they have functionally not improved and evolved in, in, a, in a positive trajectory. They haven't really grown in a, in a humane way for generations. And mm -hmm. this country really seems to be almost like just deeply allergic and resistant to like significant systemic change. And mm -hmm. that's what worries me is that uh, it's Donald Trump is the cause of a lot of problems that this country is experiencing. So I, I can start there and agree there. But, you know, we live in New York and New York has a Democratic governor. I live in a city with a Democratic mayor. Forty nine out of 50 of our city council people are Democrats and no place has had the level of death from the coronavirus like New York has had. And we can blame it on the way New York is 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 populated or built. But other big cities around the world had nothing like this. So like our failures are not just Republican and Democrat, like our failures are deep systemic problems from mass incarceration and everything else. Um, I, you know, I, Donald Trump Jr. retweeted me one day, which I, and I was mortified because I said that <laughs> the worst police brutality happening around the country was happening in cities with Democratic mayors. And he retweeted that because he's he wanted to kind of weaponize it. But whether he retreated it or not, it's actually true. And if we're talking about Louisville, if we're talking about Minneapolis, if we're talking about Los Angeles or Seattle or Portland, these are cities controlled by Democrats. And part of what worries me is if we think just voting Democrats into office will solve our problems, how do we explain? How do we explain George Floyd? Uh, mm -hmm. How do we explain Breonna Taylor in, in Louisville? Kentucky has a Democratic governor, a Democratic Louisville had a Democratic mayor, a Democratic district attorney, and they still failed this family. And so our problems are deeper than just party. I, I voted with Democrats my whole life, but we have to see these problems as like deep systemic problems. Right. And if we're going to use it as a stepping stone. We have to be smart about how we change yeah. systems. And to mm -hmm. your point, you know, it's much more than a political problem. And yep. And so as it's a consciousness problem, it's mm. are we willing to address the fact that systemic racism even exists? You know, right. there was a time where you couldn't even say that term in mixed company. Right. So now we are, when, when you see the, the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, what I find really interesting are the amount of white allies that sure. are the movement. Um, and what does that mean? You know, I, you know, I think time has yet to tell us. Yeah. We can make some assumptions right now, but what we know more than anything 
is that people are aware of what's happening. And so I think the conversation to your point goes much farther than politics or pointing at one person or one entity or one party. Mm -hmm. it, it really speaks to the history of a nation and the blindness that we as individuals um, or the comfort that we as individuals take in the status quo. So yeah. now we're all really uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, and, oh, for and, sure. And one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you, Sean, I think it uh, relates to a good segue with the question, uh, well, the statement that Shatara just made. Um, you spoke about the optimism that, you know, that, you, you know, you're typically an optimistic person, but you know, with everything that, that we're seeing right now and, you know, with the allies, you know, kind of stepping up to the plate and, you know, and just the energy that we have around this movement right now, uh, are you optimistic that we can like really see like real change in, in our lifetimes? You know, because, um, you know, I, one of the things that I think that I was just content with was the fact that maybe I might not see you know, the necessary change in my lifetime. But I know that the generation that I live in now, um, we're, we're planting the seed right now. We're doing the work, you know, that my kids and my grandkids will be able to um, one day, you know, kind of look back and, you know, kind of tell the story about, you know, what, what had happened back in this day, you know? So, yeah. um, so are you I optimistic about it that, that we can poss um, possibly see this change? I, I'm still optimistic about it. And, and I can give you a very specific example. Um, one of my good friends is now the district attorney of San Francisco. His name is Chesa Boudin. And um, Chesa was a, a, a brilliant public defender and scholar, just a super smart, compassionate guy and decided to run for district attorney just last year. And when he was running, he said that one of his goals was to cut San Francisco's jail population by 50 percent. And when we helped campaign for Chesa, I thought that that. I never said this out loud, but I thought it would take him at least four years, but maybe maybe eight years, two full terms to do such a thing because nobody had ever cut the jail population by 50 percent in any American city. Not not in four years, not in eight years. And at the time when he said 50 percent, that was kind of like the highest number anybody was talking about. Well, he's been in office now for seven months and has already cut the jail population by nearly 60 percent. And wow. he's done in seven months what I honestly I never said it out loud before. I thought it would take him four or eight years if it was even possible. So what he's shown me and it's caused me to completely reconsider what we can do just just with that one position. But deep systemic change, it is possible. Um just recently, seven out of the nine members of Seattle's city council, uh, which is a veto proof majority there in Seattle, have agreed to cut their police department's budget by 50 percent and to reallocate those funds to social services, to homelessness, to substance abuse, to, to, to supporting jobs and other issues. That's a deep sweeping systemic change. They won't have that vote for about another two weeks. Mm -hmm. But if they do have that vote, that is a that's a deep moment of change that I, I don't think any of us ever considered just a few months ago. I don't think we'll see the end of racism. We won't see the end of police brutality. I don't even think in our lifetime we'll see the end of mass incarceration as we know it. 
but we can see these systems changed drastically. And, um, you know, this country will hold on to its kind of racist roots, I, I think, until it's it's dying day. But that doesn't mean city by city, county by county, state by state, that we can't fight for like real lasting, meaningful change. Sure. And, and I think it's really important for the community itself to come together and really understand what it takes to make that change. So, yeah. you know, that vote, uh, you know, about a, a police budget can only work if that community understands what policing is and how how to uh, how to take funds and really put it towards things that are restorative. Yeah. Right? And what that means for that community. Yeah. Um, and so as 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 black people, because this is the B suite, right? Like <laughs> I think it's important that we're we're coming together and understanding that we need to first be able to articulate we do here at home. Yeah. Like what those needs are. And also be able to say, what can we do from where we sit right now to to make that change apparent even within our own community, right? Yeah, yeah. But, and there's a book that I recommend. It's called Locking Up Our Own. And it's by a law professor from Yale, James Foreman Jr. His father, James Foreman, was a legendary civil rights leader. And it actually won the Pulitzer Prize two years ago, but it hasn't gone viral for a really painful reason. I think it's the most important book that's come out in a very long time. And it's shaped the way I see everything about police violence and mass incarceration. But what James did in the book is he showed the role of the Congressional Black Caucus, the role of our favorite black mayors who are legends to all of us, and the role of the Democratic Party in building the systems and structures of mass incarceration. And uh, James is also a, a lifelong Democrat. He was a public defender in Washington, D.C., but he wrote the book that nobody was willing to write. And it, it, there's a reason Democrats don't share the book, because it's a book in a lot of ways about that's why it's called Locking Up Our Own. It, many of our favorite mayors, including today's mayors from in, in I lived in Atlanta for 20 years in Atlanta and Charlotte and other cities around the country. They even have to come to grips with. How have we intentionally or unintentionally, how have we built systems that may be causing our own oppression? How have we funded them and supported them? And, and, and the book unpacks that and it's painful for people to read. And, and yet it has helped me understand that if we did unintentionally help build these systems, that that means we can also intentionally dismantle them and tear them back down and imagine something better in, in its place. What I've seen over these past couple of weeks and months is that we have to also engage people's imagination to say the system doesn't have to be this way. Uh, it, it, it was built this way as a tool of oppression. It wasn't built this way to keep us safe. It wasn't built this way to keep America safe. Anybody. It was built this way to help empower some people and disempower others. 
And so it does. You're right. It requires a lot of education, public education, explanation. And once people begin to say like, oh, there are there are ways we could do this better. If it's as simple as having a different phone number that people call other than 911 for a mental health emergencies, if it's something as simple as that, that could prevent as 25 percent of all people who are killed by police are having a mental health crisis. If all of a sudden nurses and social workers and trained people were sent to homes instead of, you know, people with guns, it could prevent a lot of death. And so it requires part of, I have a podcast that I do every single day. And part of the reason I do it, I'm, I'm, I'm at almost 300 episodes. Part of why I do it every day is because I just use it as a tool to keep trying to teach people new lessons, new ideas, new insights into why the system is the way it is. You know, I think um, in a country like ours, when you have, even in, in, in today's day and age, you have elected officials who are the first, right? The first black, the first, oh, right. black, the first, right? I think it's really difficult. And maybe even sometimes it, it can be a little bit um, unfair because to, to, to put all of the, the, the responsibility on that one person. Sure. Because they are trying to enter a system yeah. built to, to exclude them. Absolutely. You need that first, that second, that third yep. to be able to build up that credibility and really change that level of consciousness in our culture to then have somebody come in and make bolder moves. Yeah, you know, I I've helped people understand that, that it's a it's a probably more complicated than I have time to unpack today, but something that has really limited and impacted black women in politics, perhaps more than anybody else to be a black woman, not just in politics, but to be a black woman in power often requires you to always color within the lines. Mm -hmm. And anytime you color outside of the lines, that may, that may mean a demotion that may mean termination. It's, it rarely means elevation to, to the next level or the next position. And so what happens is you may get brilliant, bold, courageous black women in politics who are taught either explicitly or implicitly that to rise up through the ranks politically, you have to you have to really color within the lines and play by all of the rules. And that same standard doesn't apply. People who are watching this may know that I worked I worked for most of the past five years to help elect Bernie Sanders as president. Those rules don't apply to Bernie. Uh, Bernie, as as a white man in America, is actually celebrated for not coloring within the lines, for breaking a lot of the political rules. Well, black women in politics are rarely afforded that privilege. And so what happens is black women in politics who, if you speak to them behind closed doors, may be the most radical people intellectually that you could ever meet, have been taught, though, that politically they have to be super moderate to rise up from city council person to mayor to congressperson to senator. 
And then what happens is you end up having black women who are who are in those positions that super progressive people say, well, I'm not really big on this person or that person. Like, I'm a huge fan of Keisha Lance Bottom. She's the mayor of Atlanta. I know her. She's my friend. I know her heart, her politics. I helped campaign for her to become mayor. And I've said that I thought she would be a great vice president to Joe Biden. Well, a lot of my progressive friends see her and they're like, I don't I don't know. She's not she's not as progressive as I would like person A, B or C to be. It's like, listen, you don't live in Georgia. You don't know what it's like to be a black woman in politics in the deep south and to try to rise up through the ranks. And the same thing was true of Stacey Abrams. I've grown in my even the way that I view Kamala Harris to say, again, you know, I'm not I'm not a fan of her time as district attorney. I'm not even a super fan of her time as attorney general of California. But I've grown to look at her in those positions through a bit of a forgiving lens mm-hmm. to understand that in those positions, she was really taught to very much play by the rules to rise up through the ranks in a way that a lot of other people just don't have to play. And I have found her as a senator where she now kind of has a lot more freedom to be bold politically, to be a much truer version of who she probably should have been as district attorney or as attorney general, but there's just these low ceilings. And um, there's those low ceilings. And also sometimes we are the biggest critics of our own leaders. And without supporting Mm -hmm. our black leaders, they don't have the groundswell to be able to do what we need in order to come back to the community. And so I just think it's of the utmost importance for us to support our black leaders Mm -hmm. who are really from the inside, which is completely different than being on the outside, from the inside trying to make that change. So critical of our black leaders. That's a a really good point. Cause that was actually gonna be one of the questions that I have for you, Sean, because with all of the work that you do as a leader, um, as a leader um, in this movement right now, it hasn't come without, you know, it's share of controversy, right? Yep. And one of the things that uh, that we want to make sure that we are doing is make sure that we are supporting you in, 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 in your efforts and such. But a lot of times, a lot of the, the backlash comes from people that look like you and I. So oh, how, most how you, of it, most of it does. Yeah. You know? How do you navigate that? Oh, it's painful. Oh, it's painful. You know, um, Keisha Lance Bottoms, again, to use her as an example, my wife graduated from Spelman and two years ago, uh, Keisha had just been elected mayor and Spelman chose her as their commencement speaker. And a group of black women students at Spelman protested and said, we don't want, we don't like her. We don't respect her. Like, like, no, you can't have her as our commencement speaker. We won't even attend our own graduation if you do. And it wasn't that they didn't have some legitimate criticisms of her, but she's like a brilliant, she's a brilliant leader. And, and so sometimes like the way we treat uh, each other and the, like the, the harshness that, that we use toward each other uh, is painful, man. Like, you know, there was a time when I was first kind of rising to prominence in 2014 and 2015 where almost all of my opposition was literally from white conservatives and white supremacists and others. 
it only took a few years before kind of the worst attacks that I experienced were primarily coming from black folk who were just merciless in their criticism. And, and here's the thing, let me say this. There are, there are times where we have to legitimately critique people, critique their decisions, where we can have thoughtful criticism. But a lot of what I experience, a lot of what so many people in leadership experience, it's not always thoughtful critiques. It's not always rooted in truth. Uh, sometimes it's super hurtful. And, and uh, you know, the way we can tear each other down, uh, it's disturbing. And, and for me, as somebody who's trying to, like, I'm, I'm most often fighting to change the systems of police brutality and mass incarceration. It requires me to think of people as more than their worst day, more than their worst moment. But often we reduce uh, we reduce each other to our worst day, our worst moment. And uh, it's it's painful to endure. And, you know, I've talked with so many other leaders who've also endured it, including Keisha Lance Bottoms and others. And it gets back to what I said earlier is. You just have to be focused enough to know your calling, to know your purpose. You have to have people around you that love you. So, like, I don't put my worth in what people are saying about me on Twitter today or tomorrow or yesterday. It's not that it doesn't impact me at all. It does. But I, it's not where I get my value. It's not where my self-esteem, to, do, to, to, to be able to actually live that out, it means something very particular, though. I don't really believe my own hype, whatever. You know, every day I see people say wildly complimentary things about me, and I just push that to the side. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the same day, I see people say the most horrible, hurtful things about me, and I have to push that to the side as well and just stay focused and keep moving forward. I don't, I don't think I am the best of what people say about me, and I know that I'm not the worst of what people say. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to find a way to to kind of live in the middle and, and stay focused the best you can. Sure. So let's pivot it just a little bit because um, you uh, have a, a new initiative or, or your book that's coming out, Make Change, yep. you know, and in this book, um, it's really about uh, you offer ins like an inspiring look um, at the moments that have really shaped your life. Right. So so kind of talk about, you know, your inspiration behind um, behind this book and just kind of if you can just kind of talk to us, this give us a sneak preview about some of those inspirational uh, moments that have really shaped. Yeah. And then uh, I saw that my family was texting me and telling me to hurry up and come to dinner. And so <laughs> after that, I, <laughs> I even I even heard them calling my name a minute ago. So I, I got to go in just a minute. But, you know, I, I got everywhere I went before the pandemic. I, I traveled all over the country. I, I traveled to 47 states, organizing, teaching, meeting with people literally from deep in Alaska to deep, deep in the heart of Alabama and Mississippi to, to the Dakotas and everything in between. And one of the questions that I always got over and over and over again, in person, in email, through direct message every day, and I still get it. People just want to know how they can actually make a difference in the world. What they'd always say to me was some version of, okay, Sean, I am frustrated about police brutality, mass incarceration, racial injustice. Sean, can you actually tell me what I should do next? Mm -hmm. And what I found literally getting asked that question hundreds of times is that I didn't have a quick answer. There's not an easy answer for it. And, and I would kind of fumble and struggle through it. And 
in 2018 and 2019, I literally took almost an entire year to just study not only the work that I had done over the past few years, but to just study how change actually works. How do we change systems? How do they how do they get changed? What are the decisions that people have to make? And in a lot of ways, I wrote this book. It's almost 300 pages of me trying to explain to people who asked me that original question. Like, Sean, I'm pissed. I'm frustrated. I'm hurt. Now, what do I do next? And this book is really an answer to that on how we can use our lives as as everyday people. You don't have to be uh, you don't have to be a full time activist or a or, or, or full time organizer. None of us have degrees in activism or organizing. We're all everyday people, but that any of us can tilt our lives toward justice, not just regarding police brutality or mass incarceration, but it could be for the environment. It could be for children. My wife is a is a is a literary expert and teaches children how to read and has won awards for that work. Whatever it is you're wanting to change in the world, what I try to teach in the book is how you actually use your life to to make that change happen. And, you know, to both of you and to everybody who's listening, I just want you to understand that you actually have everything you need now to start that work. And one of the ways we get frozen in place and in time is thinking, if I only had this, if I only had that, if I only... If I only had a few more followers, if I only had a certain gadget or tool or piece of technology, listen, what you have right now, at the very least, is all you need to get started. And what I have found is that it's not that most people who want to change the world fail doing it. Most people fail to even get started. And what I want people to know is you have to make a decision on the problem you want to solve. And I unpack even what that looks like, what decisions you have to make, make a decision on the problem you want to solve, and then just start the process of fighting to change the world toward that one issue, that one problem. And so uh, it's a practical book. I don't just talk about my successes. Like I dig deep into my failures, my mistakes. It's a super transparent book where I talk about even the the pain and trauma that I've experienced as a as a child, as an even as an adult, um, and and so it's it's equal parts um, memoir and manifesto, and people can kind of go with me through my own journey and evolution in the book. But at the root of it is just if if you read the book, even if you just read some of it, you're going to come out of there knowing how to use your life to make a difference in the world. And and so I'm excited for people to have it. Um, you know, from now on, when people ask me that question, I'll be able to say, Hey, go buy my book. <laughs> and here is, and it just took me 275 pages to, to answer it. But, uh, I also have a, we did a, a really brilliant audio book for it. We have a lot of fun guest voices and people who are there. And, uh, so the book and the audio book both come out on August the 4th and, uh, they, it's it's an easy read in that I think once you start it, you won't be able to put it down. It's engaging, but you're going to learn a lot in the process. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You know, I, I just want to say, you know, it, I don't think it's any secret that you're a polarizing figure. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is, is that what I respect is uh, your humility and your endurance. Um, endurance. <laughs> endurance is something that makes work complete. 
but it is not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. Um, And it takes a a person of faith uh, to have endurance. So um, regardless of what people think about you, what I hope people get out of this interview um, and this discussion is what it takes uh, to, to stick to a, to a principle and yeah. see it through. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so much of the way people see me is not through their own personal interactions. It's through what they heard about what somebody else said, about what somebody else said. But I think both of you from this interview and others like people who've actually met me and actually work with me tend to have a really good experience. Like I've never even raised my voice at somebody a day in my life. Like when I see people making me out to be I've never said a curse word at a person a day in my life. Like I'm actually like a deep, sensitive, compassionate, kind soul. When I see people making me out to be a monster or or a fraudster or something else. Like it just still blows my mind the way people talk about me online. All I can do is again, as I said earlier, like just push through it and do, as you said, just in, endure the attacks. In some ways I've isolated myself from that. Uh, I don't, I don't even see the good or the bad that people say so much. And uh, if I did, I, I'd never be able to get the work done. And, uh, and so I just keep on pushing. Yeah. Sean, you know, you you do a yeoman's job with everything that you do. Um, and uh, we certainly appreciate you um, just for being a, a voice of, of this generation, you know, embracing, you know, just this public consciousness about all of the things that's happening here. Um, but also to just being that being that true leader and, and giving us you know, those, those actionable steps, you know, I love your podcast where, you know, every, at, you know, at the end of every podcast, you, you know, you give people action steps and, you know, just to, just to get people moving and mo- mobilized. So we thank you just so much for all that you do. Um, I know it's, it's, it's not, it's not an easy job. It's not an easy job whatsoever, but you, uh, you, you certainly are built for it. And, 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 and quite frankly, we, we need you, we need your energy, you know, I appreciate it. No, absolutely. So um, before we let you go, um, if you just want to give people an opportunity to um, just follow you, where, where can people follow you online? You know, how can they get the book? You know, kind of plug your plug your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, across social media, I'm always at Sean King, S-H-A-U-N-K-I-N-G. But uh, there, there are two projects that I'm leading that people can check out. If you go to grassrootslaw.org, you can see the work that we're doing now. We have almost 25 full-time staff members who are just doing phenomenal work. And I'd love for you to see the work that we're doing. We're working around the clock, making a difference all over the country. And if you're interested in learning more about the book, purchasing the book, even seeing what it's about, pre-ordering it, you can go to makechangebook.com, learn all about it. There's a video there where I break it down as well, but glad to be on here. Glad to spend some time with both of you and uh, appreciate talking to you both. No, absolutely. Thank you. And one, one last, last, last thing. Yeah. Who do you have in the versus battle tonight? DMX or Snoop? You know, I think Snoop is going to win tonight. Okay, it's okay. not. I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of DMX. I'm a fan of them both, or I have been a fan of them both. But um, I think DMX's struggle is going to be the, the, the length of his career. Right. And like during his height. I, you know, like my kids have no idea how huge DMX was at his best. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have like a he's going to have a potent like five year period. Mm-hmm. The struggle is Snoop was able to be relevant for a much longer period of time. 
So I think DMX is going to struggle against the length of Snoop's career. Yeah, is he Snoop lying now? No, nah, he's, he's back. back. No, nah, he's, he's back, back to <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> well, Sean, thank you again, man, so much. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate everything. Uh, thank your family for uh, allowing us to get some of your time yeah, away from you for a little bit. And uh, we just appreciate you. And, uh, we, you know, we'll continue to support you in all that you do. Yeah, thank you all. Take yeah. care now. Thanks, man. Peace. Yeah, bye now. All right. That was dope. That was great. That was really dope. That was good. It, it's yeah. good to hear the perspective of someone um, who puts themselves out there like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not easy to, to do that. Um, and, you know, again, like the Be Sweet podcast is not about telling people what to believe or um, how to act. It's really about facilitating those intelligent conversations mm -hmm. uh, and how they affect Black people. And Sean King affects Black people. Right. <laughs> I mean, he affects a lot of people. But the work that he does um, is is part and parcel to what happens to Black people. So it is really interesting to kind of get to speak to him and uh, on that level. Really, uh, really good conversation. Yeah, so I, I'll always welcome a good conversation. Yeah, no, this was fantastic, and um, you know, again, I, I just appreciate him even being the polarizing figure that he is. You know. Um, the way that he speaks truth to power, the way he does. And, and again, you know, he does stuff for us, you know, and we, and we need that. We need more voices like that. We need more, more of that energy for people to continue to step up because we we're living in some trying times right now. This is, uh, you know, you know, I, I would never want to compare, you know, our situation, what we're going through right now to, you know, things that, you know, our, our parents and grandparents and predecessors have gone through, but, you know, quite frankly, I believe like this is our version of the civil rights era. It's an you awakening. Know? Yeah. You yeah. know, I think we're in a slumber. Yeah. And I, I one thing I posted um, on my Instagram one day was, I hope. Wait, you on Instagram? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who? The ghost of Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, I, I hope we can finally put the argument of whether or not racism still exists to bed. Like, I hope we're at that point in our society where we can we can say, yeah, it is a thing. And, you know, let's work through the issues that got us here. Um, and I think uh, the devil's in the details. Um, mm -hmm. And so everybody chooses how, what methods they want to use. But I think it was a beautiful conversation to see his perspective um, and also understand that, like, as Black people, we're our own, we're our harshest critics. Yeah. And um, if, if we can, can understand how to support each other from wherever that person sits and come together as a community, we can help articulate um, that, that the need and really the change. Right. So, um, you know, I just really, I love people. Yeah. I love being black. Yeah. I love black people. Blackity black. It's not, it's nothing <laughs> like all of this, 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 this sexy melanin. It's <laughs> you know, something that I think is, it. I always try to figure out like what makes, what makes black culture um, just so vibrant. And one thing that I, that I recently learned is that trauma is a thing that makes you um, more open and resilient. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that kind of, that, that translates into our culture mm -hmm. in, you know, into our entertainment, 
in, in, into just how we, we move through the world. And I think that's what makes us so attractive to other cultures. Right. And, and so um, we do, we have a lot of trauma. I talk about that a lot and addressing that trauma, maybe because I got my own, <laughs> but I think, I think that when, and I said it before, you know, when you grow through things, you you blossom. What do mm. butterflies do? Right. Mm. Go from a caterpillar and you know, mm. and you come through that cocoon, you're a whole new, a whole new being. Yeah. So I think as black people, we're going through um uh what is it called? What is it called when a a, a caterpillar goes from a butterfly to a it's butterfly? Like a no, no, no. What's the no. process called? Um, somebody I, tell me. Yeah, oh, somebody no. type yo, somebody <laughs> type it in the comments real quick. Word. But yeah, when, yeah, you, type it in the when comments. you um when you go metamorphosis. There you go. Ah, right. I got it. We don't need y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, like, but right. we're going, we're going through a metamorphosis. And I really think that many people, not just black people, mm. are going through a metamorphosis. And on the other side, it's just it's a lot of love, it's a lot of beauty, it's a lot of community. Um, it feels hard now. It feels scary now. Um, but if we continue to have these conversations um, and be open and honest and and vulnerable, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I'm optimistic. Well, I'm I'm glad you are. <laughs> I'm super glad that you're optimistic. And real quick before we wrap up, uh, again, we are uh, experimenting using new technologies and such. I just want to give a couple of shout outs to some folks that's what, that were checking in. Um, we got, uh, of course, Mark Overall. Shout out to Jamil and Shatora. We appreciate you. you. But yo, he, you know, uh, also he says, uh, Shatora, your hair is always fire. Oh, is it? Hashtag she woke up dope like this. I keep fixing it. Like, which angle are y'all getting right now? Uh Uh-oh. You know, shout out to also um, Zanetta Everhart. Hey, girl. Let's let's go. Uh, My girl, Bella Brittany Fletcher. Uh, Oh, hey, girl. People checking in. Um, Anton Webb, you know, I, I love what he said. So he said, a big, myself. Yeah, life does not always follow the script that we've written for it, but you have to learn how to forgive yourself when this that's a whole podcast, yeah, you know, yeah. You we know. might have to bring you on the podcast on, for that, know. brother. You know what I'm saying? So, um, also to uh, uh, Jaleesha DMX, absolutely, DMX is going to win tonight. I don't know, I'm in a smooth vibe. I'm nah, some yeah, I as soon as he plays that, that sensual seduction, I was, <laughs> I was the West Coast. Yeah, and then um, big shout out to again uh, Andrea, great interview, um, and Mark again. You know he was in metamorphosis. I got, I got it. <laughs> she Thank already got that. it, but you know, Thank but we you. appreciate Lawyers that. And also too, um, big shout out to everybody on Facebook who were checking in. I see my guy Reggie, Ron, um, Veronica, Sheldon, Jay Can, uh, my guy Nate Benson, uh, my pastor Brett Cockrell, Lynette, Cray, my guy Tariq. Everybody for checking in. Yo, we really appreciate y'all. Uh, I know we, like I said, we've been on a little hiatus for a little bit for obvious reasons um, for COVID Y'all not and everything else. Podcast right now anyway. No, people are. No, no, people, are, yeah, I think people are listening. And, no, no, no. Podcast was actually up, and I think people were really. I mean, from a lot of messages that I received on Facebook and people texting me and such, like they were, they were missing us, man. Mm-hmm. They were missing us. Mm-hmm. So you know, we, we we're back, y'all. We're yeah. back. Yeah, we are back. And big and again, big 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 shout out to Sean King. This is our, our first big interview, you know. So, you know, we popping out here. I like how you said first. Yeah, <laughs> we're we popping. It's not gonna be our last. <laughs> you said we're yeah. I can't, I, you know, I can't big myself up like that. But y'all can say if, I, if y'all say it, I'll, I, I'll big you up. I'll big <laughs> you up then. You know what I'm saying? But no, um, again, thank you guys so much for tuning in. 
Uh, make sure that you uh, you follow us on all of the major streaming platforms, wherever you like to listen to your um, your podcasts, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Um, we do have a website. You can follow us uh, at thebsweetpodcast.com. That's thebsweetpodcast.com. Make sure you also follow us on, on Instagram um, at bsweetpodcast.com podcast and on our Facebook page. There will be a lot more activity, y'all. I promise you guys. Um, we're just so excited just to be back um, and just be looking forward <laughs> to uh, more interviews, more dope, it. dope interviews that's going to be coming up. So. I love it. We've got some good stuff lined up, y'all. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say our studio is Sweet B. Yes, y'all. Absolutely. Come on. I, yeah. was, I was like, Jamil, Sweet B? Come we, on. We're, we're actually in because y'all know the last time we, uh, we recorded. I was, you know, we were um, recording from from home because of COVID and everything. But you know, I'm back in the studio now. We are in Sweet B, the B Suite. You know, so we are we are here, man. And yo, big, <laughs> big, big, big shout out. I, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out my dog, my brother from another mother, my guy Charles. He's on the always on the check in on mean, the production. Y'all know how I feel about Charles. Yeah. Okay. Yo, Charles, bring yourself in. Matter of <laughs> fact, matter of fact, I got you. I got you. Charles yeah. Is so cute. Yo, we got to We got to shout out to my guy Charles, man. He's always just. I'm just always holding this down, man. I so I've never heard him speak. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yo, we appreciate you um, for all of the production and stuff. So, so again, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, we'll be back on another episode of the B Suite Podcast really soon. Um, the audio will be up um, this week as well, so you can check it out. And um, thank you. We appreciate y'all. Yo, it's all love. Peace.